Just to bring you up to date on the news of Europe, if you're just turning on your radios... Good evening. The television and radio stations of the United States and their affiliated stations are proud to provide facilities for a discussion... Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be freed and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit upland. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age, made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Welcome to Storytime in History with Miss Gitlin, a history education podcast so that you can learn without having to be in the classroom. On February 3rd, 1933, Adolf Hitler met secretly with Germany's leading generals. He had been appointed Chancellor of Germany only four days before and was by no means assured that he would remain in office for long. However, he spoke with confidence. Hitler told the generals about his desire to remove the cancer of democracy, create the highest authoritarian state leadership, and forge a new domestic unity. All Germans would need to realize that only a struggle can save us, and that everything else must be subordinated to this idea. Obviously, today we're going to be talking about World War II. And while I started with a little story of Hitler, I'm actually going to start the main story in a way you might not be used to. We won't be starting with Europe. Instead, I wanted to follow some things as they happened, and the first outbreak of World War II was not actually in Europe, despite Adolf Hitler making that speech to German generals. But actually, it started centered in China. It starts with an empire struggling to prove itself against the doubts of the world. It starts with an empire that wants to conquer and gain power and show their supremacy. This sounds a lot like Germany at the start of World War I, but this time that empire is Japan. Conflict in Asia began well before the official start of World War II. Seeking raw materials to fuel its growing industries, Japan invaded the Chinese province of Manchuria in 1931. Early in the 1920s, the Republic of China started getting their act together. While the country had effectively collapsed into a patchwork of feuding warlords in the 1910s after European imperialism, the Kuomintang managed to get most of the South unified under its government before embarking on what is now called the Northern Expedition from 1926 to 1928. This also brought the north of the country of China under the control of the nationalist government, which was set up in the city of Nanjing. Nationalist China still had issues, warlords among them, but by 1928 it was a much stronger state. China was unifying again for the first time since Europeans had broken it apart under imperialism. The Japanese Empire viewed China's steps towards reversing the damage of the previous century as a threat to its control and expansion of empire in China. Losing anything to China was seen as unacceptable because, of course, the Japanese had spent the last 50 years desperately trying to avoid being China. 
To that end, in 1931, the Japanese invaded Manchuria to protect their interests in the railroad there and the Kwantung Least Territory. Japan subsequently set up a puppet state, Manchukuo, which nobody else recognized as a legitimate state. This action isolated Japan, causing them to walk out of the League of Nations, and it also meant a continuing series of border clashes with the Chinese. Eventually, in 1937, the Japanese provoked the Chinese into full-scale war with the Marco Polo Bridge incident. What happened that July night in 1937 is not entirely clear, but the Japanese were carrying out training exercises without giving the customary notice, and a few shots were exchanged between them and the startled Chinese troops who controlled the town of Wanping. The Japanese discovered that one of their soldiers was missing and thought the Chinese might have captured him and demanded to be allowed to search Wanping. The Chinese said that they would be doing the searching themselves with one Japanese officer who could accompany them. Japanese infantry then tried to force their way into Wanping but were driven back. Both sides sent more troops to the area and early in the morning of July 8th, Japanese infantry and armored vehicles attacked the bridge and took it, though they were driven off again. Attempts were made to settle things, but the incident gave Japanese hawks, those who wanted war with China, the excuse to mount a full-scale invasion of China. Hundreds of thousands of troops were sent in. Beijing and Shanghai fell in 1937, as did Nanking, where Chiang Kai-shek, the nationalist leader of China, had established his capital. When the Japanese arrived at Nanking, where the Chinese government was located, the true scope of how inferior they thought the Chinese were came out in full force. The destruction has since been titled the Rape of Nanking, not only because of the brutality of the attack on the city, but because thousands of women and children were violated by the Japanese army. John Rabe was a German businessman who resided in China since 1908. He represented the China branch of the Siemens Company and lived in Nanking at the time of the Japanese invasion. As the Japanese approached, he joined other foreign nationals in establishing a safety zone within the city that would harbor only civilians and unarmed soldiers. It was hoped that, devoid of combatants, the Japanese would spare the safety zone. John Rabe kept a diary of his experiences, and he writes, All the shelling and bombing we have thus far experienced are nothing in comparison to the terror that we are going through now. There is not a single shop outside our zone that has not been looted, and now pillaging, rape, murder, and mayhem are occurring inside the zone as well. There is not a vacant house, whether with or without a foreign flag, that has not been broken into and looted. I've just heard that hundreds more disarmed Chinese soldiers have been let out of our zone to be shot, including 50 of our police who are to be executed for letting soldiers in. The road to Hisekwan is nothing but a field of corpses. According to the International Military Tribunal for the Far East, it estimated that 20,000 women, including some children and the elderly, were raped during the occupation. A large number of these were done systematically by the Japanese soldiers as they went from door to door, searching for girls, with many women being captured. The women and children were often killed immediately after, often through explicit mutilation. One witness, the Reverend John McGee, a member of the American Episcopal Church Mission, who had been there for more than a quarter of a century, took motion pictures that exist to this day of the aftermath of the rape of Nanking. Now, Japan's story branches here because, of course, by 1937, there's a new leader in Germany, one who is leading a party that will soon be infamous. Because by 1937, Germany was more of a world power than it had ever been before, just as Hitler had proclaimed to his generals. 
France, Great Britain, and Italy continually condemned Germany's actions and warned against future aggressive steps and breaking the Treaty of Versailles, which had limited Germany's army since then. In the midst of the Great Depression, however, these nations were distracted by their own internal problems and did nothing further to stop Hitler. Hitler was convinced that the Western states had no intention of using force to maintain the Treaty of Versailles. Hence, on March 7, 1936, he sent German troops into the Rhineland. The Rhineland was part of Germany, but according to the Treaty of Versailles, it was a demilitarized area. That is, Germany was not permitted to have weapons or fortifications there. France had the right to use force against any violation, but would not act without British support. Great Britain didn't support the use of force against Germany at all, however. The British government viewed the occupation of German territory by German troops as a reasonable action by a dissatisfied power. The London Times noted that the Germans were only going back into their own garden. Great Britain thus began to practice a policy of appeasement. This policy was based on the belief that if German states satisfied the reasonable demands of the dissatisfied powers, aka Hitler, that he would be content and stability and peace could be achieved in Europe. Hitler was convinced that neither France nor Great Britain would provide much opposition to his plans because of this policy. In 1938, he decided to pursue one of his gold, Anschluss, or union with Austria, his native land. If you've ever watched The Sound of Music, then you know how this goes. By threatening Austria with invasion, Hitler forced the Austrian chancellor to put Austrian Nazis in charge of the government. The new government promptly invited German troops to enter Austria and help in maintaining law and order. One day later, on March 13, 1938, after his triumphal return to his native land, Hitler annexed Austria to Germany. Hitler's next objective was the destruction of Czechoslovakia. On September 15, 1938, he demanded that Germany be given the Sudetenland, an area in northwestern Czechoslovakia that was inhabited largely by Germans. He expressed his willingness to risk world war to achieve this objective. At a hastily arranged conference in Munich, British, French, German, and Italian representatives did not object to Hitler's plan, but instead reached an agreement that met virtually all of Hitler's demands. German troops were allowed to occupy the Sudetenland. The Czechs, abandoned by their Western allies, were abandoned. Czechoslovakia was a major arms manufacturer and had a very modern army of 25 divisions. If Hitler carried out his threat and German forces crossed the border, the Czechs wanted to fight, and they thought that they had the guaranteed support of the French and the Russians. However, the president of Czechoslovakia, Edvard Benes, capitulated to the demands of Germany, and instead of resistance, Czechoslovakia fell. Civilians and soldiers fought back in an underground resistance effort, but without unified organization, the Nazis swept in almost unimpeded. In March of 1939, Hitler invaded and took control of Bohemia and Moravia in western Czechoslovakia. In the eastern part of the country, Slovakia became a puppet state controlled by Nazi Germany. On the evening of March 15, 1939, Hitler triumphantly declared in Prague that he would be known as the greatest German of them all. At last, the Western states reacted to the Nazi threat. Hitler's aggression had made clear that his promises were worthless. When Hitler began to demand the Polish port of Danzig, Great Britain saw the danger and offered to protect Poland in the event of war. At the same time, both France and Britain realized that only the Soviet Union was powerful enough to help contain Nazi aggression. They began political and military negotiations with Joseph Stalin, the Soviet dictator. Meanwhile, Hitler pressed on in the belief that the West would not fight over Poland. He now feared, however, that the West and the Soviet Union might make an alliance. 
Such an alliance could mean a two-front war for Germany, the same as happened in World War I. To prevent this possibility, Hitler made his own agreement with Joseph Stalin. By August 23, 1939, Germany and the Soviet Union signed the Nazi-Soviet Non-Aggression Pact. In it, the two nations promised not to attack each other. To get the Non-Aggression Pact, Hitler offered Stalin control of eastern Poland and the Baltic states. Because he expected to fight the Soviet Union anyway, it didn't matter to Hitler what he promised. He was accustomed to breaking his promises. Hitler then stunned Europe with the speed and efficiency of the German attack on Poland. His Blitzkrieg, or Lightning War, used armored columns called panzer divisions of tanks, supported by airplanes. Each panzer division was a strike force of about 300 tanks with accompanying forces and supplies. This ushered in what was then known as the Phony War, which was a term that was first allegedly used by an American senator. Winston Churchill referred to the same period as the Twilight War, while the Germans referred to it as Sitzkrieg, Sitting War. The Phony War refers to what happened in Western Europe between September of 1939 and the spring of 1940. To assume that nothing was going on in Europe would be wrong, as Poland was in the process of being occupied, with all that brought for the Polish people. However, in Western Europe, very little of military importance took place. In fact, so little occurred that many of the children who had been evacuated at the start of the war had returned to their families. To many, war had been declared by Neville Chamberlain, who was prime minister at the time, but nothing was actually happening. After a winter of waiting, Hitler resumed the attack on April 9, 1940, with another blitzkrieg, this time against Denmark and Norway. One month later, on May 10th, Germany launched an attack on the Netherlands, Belgium, and France. It took only six weeks for France to capitulate to the German invaders. It was a stunning defeat, particularly since before the war, the French army was considered to be the most powerful in Europe. France's vaunted Maginot Line, which was originally put in place after World War I to stop this from happening, failed to hold back the Nazi onslaught as the German Blitzkrieg poured into France around the line. Hitler completely ignored this immense border with France and instead went around it. Thousands of civilians fled before the German Blitzkrieg. Traveling south in cars, wagons, bicycles, or simply on foot, the desperate refugees took with them what few possessions they could salvage. It wasn't long before the roads were impassable to French troops who were headed north in an attempt to reach the battlefield and stop the Germans. Paris was abandoned and declared an open city. Churchill flew to Paris on the 16th of May. He immediately recognized the gravity of the situation when he observed that the French government was already burning its archives and was preparing for an evacuation of the capital. In a somber meeting with the French commanders, Churchill asked General Gamelin, where is this strategic reserve that had saved Paris in the First World War? There is none, Gamelin replied. After the war, Gamelin claimed his response was actually, there is no longer any. Churchill later described hearing this as the single most shocking moment in his life. Churchill asked Gamelin where and when the general proposed to launch a counterattack against the flanks of the German bulge. Gamelin simply replied, Inferiority of numbers, inferiority of equipment, inferiority of methods. The French government then joined the fleeing throng after moving to and then quickly abandoning one location after another, finally ending up in the city of Vichy. The ultimate humiliation came at the signing of the armistice on June 22nd. The French had maintained as a memorial the railroad car in which the armistice ending World War I had been signed 22 years earlier. It occupied a hallowed space within a small forest north of Paris. 
Hitler insisted that France's capitulation to his Nazi juggernaut be formally acknowledged in the same railroad car at the same spot where Germany had been humiliated. Under the terms of the armistice, France was divided into two sections, occupied France under the direct German control and Vichy France, a somewhat independent puppet state with Marshal Pétain, an 84-year-old hero of the First World War, as its head. Pétain was known after this to be a traitor to France, who had basically given France up to Hitler. And now the only thing left protecting the French army, who was quickly trying to retreat, was the British. Operation Dynamo was a rescue operation implemented by the Royal Navy of Britain. It was coordinated by Vice Admiral Bertram Ramsey and his small team in Dover Castle in England. There, beneath the fortress, a network of tunnels deep within the cliffs became the nerve center controlling the evacuation of Allied forces from France. From May 19th, realizing that rescue by sea would be necessary as France fell, Ramsey and his staff at Dover were making plans and arranging for ships to evacuate the British expeditionary forces and what remained of the French army. On May 26th, they were ordered to put their plans into action. Many soldiers who were waiting on the beaches at Dunkirk, waiting for evacuation and rescue, had to put up with German attacks almost ceaselessly. The German Luftwaffe, the Air Force, was raining bombs and bullets down on the soldiers who were waiting on the beach. One soldier writes, It was a really hot day, and I'm looking around behind me, and I could see at the house a door opening, and a woman came out all in black, an oldish French woman with gray hair. She looked over and she saw me, and I was dying of thirst. I needed water. And I was going like this, agua. And she went and closed the door and went in, and I thought, that's bad luck for you. But the next minute the door opened again, and from the pump I could see inside, she brought out a tray with cut glass and a jug with water and walked across the farmyard. And there are bullets, pew, pew, going over, and a few mortars crashing, and I thought, she's mad. She came over to me. I couldn't speak French, she couldn't speak English. She said something about, you know, my bon ami or something, and she gave me the water. I said, get going, get going, go. And she got up and walked straight across. Halfway across, she stopped, spit, and turned and waved her fist at the enemy. I thought, she's some woman. The evacuation at Dunkirk probably saved the war for England. They were able to evacuate over 300,000 British and French soldiers back to England. And this is probably where Hitler's mistakes first show. The lack of response from Hitler at continuing at Dunkirk and forcing an end to the British and French armies probably allowed the war to go on much longer, and it allowed time for the United States to get involved, which ultimately would be Hitler's downfall. Now, things in Europe were not going well. The French had signed their armistice on June 22nd, and German armies now occupied about three-fifths of France. Vichy France may be controlled by Marshal Pétain, but he had to answer to the Nazis. An authoritarian regime under German control was set up over the remainder of the country. Germany was now in control of Western and Central Europe, but Britain had still not been defeated. After Dunkirk, the British appealed to the United States for help. President Franklin D. Roosevelt denounced the aggressors, but the United States followed a strict policy of isolationism. A series of neutrality acts that were passed in the 1930s prevented the United States from taking sides or becoming involved in any more European wars. 
Many Americans felt that the United States had been drawn into World War I, and they wanted to prevent a recurrence. What was left happening then was Britain was stuck on their island, and the Germans were able to go throughout all of continental Europe and control that region, exactly what Hitler wanted. The puppet government of the Vichy in France worked with and at the orders of the Nazi regime, and that racism and bigotry began to take hold in France. That isn't to say some roots hadn't always been there beforehand. Anti-Semitism had been a strain in French society since the Dreyfus Affair in the 1890s, when a Jewish French military officer had been set up and accused of a crime he didn't commit. Arthur Kostler's autobiographical Scum of the Earth reveals how foreigners were rounded up and imprisoned in camps before the Nazis arrived on French soil. The artist Max Ernst and writer Walter Benjamin were arrested. Benjamin committed suicide in September of 1940 because Vichy France, eager to please Hitler, refused German refugees an exit visa. In 1940, a majority of politicians on the right and left agreed with the, this new French fascism. As historian Robert Paxton says, never had so many Frenchmen been ready to accept discipline and authority. Defeat and occupation by the Germans in 1940 had to have a cause. For many of those in Vichy France, they judged those responsible to be Jews, communists, socialists, and Freemasons. For France to be regenerated after the freedom of the Third Republic, the guilty had to be stripped of their possessions and civil rights. The spread of hatred and bigotry was encouraged by German occupiers, and with the fall of France and the fascist uprising in Spain, continental Europe had fallen apart. Hitler realized that an amphibious or land-to-sea invasion of Britain could only succeed if Germany gained control of the air. Britain was the last European nation left. At the beginning of August 1940, the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, launched a major offensive. German planes bombed British air and naval bases, harbors, communication centers, and their war industries. The British fought back with determination. On August 20th, Churchill made what was to become one of his most famous speeches to the House of Commons, in which he stated that never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. The speech made clear the huge significance of the battle undertaken by the under-resourced Royal Air Force, they were supported by an effective radar system that gave them early warning of German attacks. Nevertheless, by the end of August, the British Air Force had suffered critical losses. However, in September, in retaliation for a British attack on Berlin, Hitler ordered a shift in strategy. Instead of bombing military targets, the Luftwaffe began massive bombings of British cities. Hitler hoped in this way to break British morale. Instead, because military targets were not being hit, the British were able to rebuild their air strength quickly. Soon, the British Air Force was inflicting major losses on Luftwaffe bombers. At the end of September, Hitler had to postpone the invasion of Britain indefinitely because his shift of strategy had failed so horribly. Here is where Japan re-enters our story, because on December 7th, 1941, a day which will live in infamy, Japanese aircraft attacked the U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor in the Hawaiian Islands. The same day, other Japanese units launched additional assaults on the Philippines, which were controlled by the United States, and began advancing towards the British colony of Malay. Japanese leaders had hoped that their lightning strike at American bases would destroy the U.S. fleet in the Pacific, 
the Roosevelt administration, they thought, would now accept Japanese domination of the Pacific. The American people, in the eyes of Japanese leaders, had been made soft by material indulgence. The Japanese miscalculated, however. The attack on Pearl Harbor unified American opinion about becoming involved in the war. The United States now joined with European nations and nationalist China in a combined effort to defeat Japan and Germany. Believing the American involvement in the Pacific would make the United States ineffective in the European theater of war, Hitler quickly declared war in the United States four days after Pearl Harbor. Another European conflict had turned into a global war. However, Hitler's declaration of war gave the United States an opportunity. It created a new coalition, the Grand Alliance. To overcome mutual suspicions, the three major allies, Great Britain, the United States, and now the Soviet Union, who had been attacked by Hitler, who had broken his promise in the non-aggression pact, agreed to stress military operations and ignore political differences. At the beginning of 1943, the Allies agreed to fight until the Axis powers, Germany, Italy, and Japan, surrendered unconditionally. The unconditional surrender principle, which required the Axis nations to surrender without any favorable condition, cemented this grand alliance by making it nearly impossible for Hitler to divide his foes. In northern Africa, British forces had stopped Nazi General Rommel's troops at El Alamein in the summer of 1942, seeing one of the first victories the Allies had after the fall of France. The Germans then had to retreat back across the desert. In November of 1942, British and American forces invaded French North Africa, which had been controlled by that puppet state. They forced the German and Italian troops who were supporting Vichy France there to surrender in May of 1943. On the Eastern Front, after the capture of Crimea, Hitler's generals wanted him to concentrate on the Caucasus Mountains and its oil fields. Hitler, however, decided that Stalingrad, a major industrial center on the Volga River, should be taken first. This would be one of Hitler's last mistakes. In perhaps the most terrible battle of the war, between November 1942 and February 2nd, 1943, the Soviets launched a counterattack. German troops were stopped, then encircled, and supply lines were cut off, all in frigid winter conditions. Hitler forgot Napoleon's largest looming lesson to never attack Russia in the winter. Russian military tactics had not changed much, and the destruction of supply lines and the burning of towns and cities and farmland to stop invading forces from gaining key Russian supplies was still in effect. A German soldier who was there at this battle in Russia wrote, The horses have already been eaten. I would eat a cat. They say its meat is also tasty. The soldiers look like corpses or lunatics looking for something to put in their mouths. They no longer take cover from Russian-Soviet shells. They haven't the strength to walk or run away and hide. A curse on this war. Another siege at Leningrad proved this strategy terribly effective. While it killed millions of Russians, the Germans retreated. The entire German Sixth Army, considered the best of the German troops, was lost. By the beginning of 1943, the tide of battle had turned against Hitler and his allies Italy and Japan. Axis forces in Tunisia surrendered on May 13th of 1943. The Allies then crossed the Mediterranean and carried the war to Italy, an area that Winston Churchill had called the soft underbelly of Europe. After taking Sicily, Allied troops began an invasion of mainland Italy in September. Italy was notoriously inept at fighting in World War II. Their failed plan to finally conquer Ethiopia and gain colonies saw the Italian army struggling, and Hitler had to send valuable German troops to bail out Mussolini, costing him time, men, and resources. 
After the fall of Sicily, Mussolini was removed from office and placed under arrest by Victor Emmanuel III, the King of Italy. A new Italian government offered to surrender to the Allied forces. However, Mussolini was liberated by the Germans in a daring raid and then set up as the head of a puppet German state in northern Italy. At the same time, German troops moved in and occupied much of Italy, helping to prop up Mussolini and what was left of his army. The Germans set up an effective new defense lines in the hills south of Rome. The Allied advance up the Italian peninsula turned into a painstaking affair with very heavy casualties. Rome did not fall to the Allies until June 4th of 1944. By that time, the Italian war had assumed a secondary role as the Allied forces opened their long-awaited second front in Western Europe. Since the autumn of 1943, the Allies had been planning an invasion of France from Great Britain across the English Channel. Finally, on June 6, 1944, also known as D-Day, Allied forces under U.S. General Dwight D. Eisenhower landed on the Normandy beaches in history's greatest naval invasion. The Allies fought their way past underwater mines, barbed wire, and horrible machine gun fire. If you've ever watched the first 20 minutes of Saving Private Ryan, you know how horrible this fight was. There were heavy German resistance, even though the Germans thought the battle was a diversion and the real invasion would occur elsewhere. This was due to a spy helping to convince German leadership that this was all just a tactic and that the Allies' true invasion would be happening days later. Germany's slow response enabled the Allied forces to set up a beachhead at Normandy. Within three months, the Allies had landed two million men and a half a million vehicles. Allied forces then pushed inland and broke through German defensive lines. After the breakout, Allied troops moved south and east. In Paris, resistance fighters rose up against the occupied Germans. The Allies liberated Paris by the end of August, and in March of 1945, they crossed the Rhine River and advanced into Germany. At the end of April 1945, Allied armies in northern Germany moved towards the Elbe River, where they linked up with the Soviets. By January of 1945, Hitler had moved into a bunker 55 feet under the city of Berlin to direct the final stages of the war. In his final political testament, Hitler, consistent to the end in his anti-Semitism, blamed the Jews for the war. He wrote, Above all, I charge the leaders of the nation and those under them to scrupulous observance of the laws of race and to merciless opposition to the universal poisoner of all peoples, international Jewry. Hitler committed suicide on April 30th, two days after Mussolini had been shot by Italian partisans, or resistance fighters. On May 7, 1945, German commanders, led by the new leader of Germany, Karl Donitz, surrendered to the Allies. This was victory in Europe. However, the war was not over. The war in Asia continued. Beginning in 1943, U.S. forces had gone to the, on the offensive and advanced, slowly most times, across the Pacific. As Allied military power drew closer to the main Japanese islands in the first months of 1945, Harry Truman, who had become president after the death of FDR in April, had a difficult decision to make. There was a secret program that he had never known about before becoming president that had developed a new weapon. These newly developed atomic weapons could bring about an end to the war, or should Truman try and find an alternative way of defeating the Japanese forces? The truth is, Truman probably had little choice. Congress wanted a swift end to the bloody war, and those who knew about the atomic bomb 
also saw that soldiers were dying in the thousands in the Pacific theater of the war. Japan had convinced many of their population that Allied troops would slaughter and humiliate them, and so American and Allied soldiers often had to clear cities, building by building, room by room, while being attacked by soldiers and civilians alike. Those who knew about the atomic bomb thought this could solve this problem. The atomic bomb could force the emperor to surrender, and Congress would see to it that Truman would be impeached if he refused to use the bomb, and he would be replaced with someone who would utilize it. Nevertheless, using atomic weapons would, Truman hoped, enable the United States to avoid a true invasion of Japan. The Japanese had made extensive preparations to defend their homeland. Truman and his advisors had become convinced that American troops would suffer heavy casualties if they invaded Japan. At the time, however, only two bombs were available, and no one knew exactly how effective they would be. Truman did decide to use the bombs. The first bomb was dropped on the Japanese city of Hiroshima on August 6th. Three days later, after hearing nothing from the emperor, a second bomb was dropped on Nagasaki. Both cities were leveled. Thousands of people died immediately after the bombs were dropped. Some, their entire existence evaporated, atom by atom. Some, you can see, have shadows left on the ground in these cities, where the blast had so fully been bright and powerful that it burned their shadows into the ground, while they themselves disintegrated. Thousands more died in later months from radiation. Over 200,000 people were estimated to have been killed at Hiroshima and Nagasaki due to the effects of the bombs over the course of those three months. Japan officially surrendered on August 14th, the emperor calling for a total surrender of the Japanese empire. World War II was finally over. 17 million had died in battle. Perhaps 20 million civilians had perished as well. Some estimates placed total losses at 50 million, sometimes not including the losses of those who died at the hands of the Nazis in concentration camps. Two out of every three Jews in Europe were murdered during the Holocaust. General Eisenhower, at the discovery of the first concentration camps, ordered journalists and photographers to the front to document it, believing that people would try to deny the horrors faced by Jews, Catholics, homosexuals, communists, political prisoners, and prisoners of war that were tortured or murdered on the orders of the SS and Hitler. In a live lesson I'm going to give to my students, I'll go into more detail on this sensitive and highly important topic. World War II is a total war, described by Churchill as not the beginning of the end, but the end of the beginning. It ushered in a truly modern age, one defined by the bloody struggles in both world wars. It ushered in the end of those moments where humanity attempted to define itself through horror and murder and bloodshed, but also they struggled to put an end to it, to fight for freedom and the end of fascism. Unfortunately, today, we see the rise of fascism again, of neo-Nazi groups, a newly reinvigorated KKK, the rise of hatred and violence against Jews. This modern age that was created in these last moments of World War II is defined by these struggles, and it will say more of who we are as people by how we choose to respond. What will we do when faced with the resurgence of this type of politics, of these types of people? I hope we are informed by the hard-fought lessons of World War II and Churchill's example that in this new modern era, we will do what is difficult and fight to stop it. If not, then perhaps that says more about modernity in ourselves than we'd like to admit. 
on that downer note, I'm gonna sign off. If you're one of my students, please do your assignments and attend my live lessons. If you're not, thanks for listening, despite not being assigned this podcast. I'll talk with you all next week on a new topic, hopefully a little lighter than this episode. But this has been really intense, and I'm going to have to sign off here. I'll talk with you all in the next one. Bye-bye. Don't know when, but I know we'll meet again some sunny day. Smiling through Just like you Always do Till the blue skies Drive the dark clouds Far away So will you please say hello To the folks that I know Tell them I won't be long They'll be happy to know that as you saw me go, I was singing this song. We meet again, don't know when, don't know when, but I know we'll meet again some sunny day.